As I sat in a chapel among hundreds of other listeners, engulfed in the joy of hearing Bach's music, the musical embodiment of the Christian's journey of faith, I felt my own faith and testimony called up and made alive, resurrected. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Here at In Good Faith, we love art and what it does for us. Paintings, music, photography, architecture, film, sculpture, dance, they all transport us to a different place, make us think of things we might not have considered, give us strong emotions, light all our senses up. Art is powerful and evocative. And that's why art has been associated with religious purposes since humans first tried to connect to the divine. In almost every culture, the earliest paintings and musical compositions, the greatest feats of architecture were inspired by and commissioned for religious purposes. We decided to speak to religious artists in the United States and gather different perspectives about how art and spirituality influence each other today. We'll be speaking with Kimia Ferdosi Klein, a Baha'i visual artist whose work focuses on relationships, but also to J. Kirk Richards, a Latter-day Saint painter whose work is explicitly for Christian audiences and discusses the ways he portrays Christ. We'll also explore how spirituality influences actor and director Agam Darshi, a filmmaker from the Sikh tradition whose first film is now on Netflix. And we'll hear from musicologist Jenny Thomas, who recounts returning to public concerts in the 2022 Easter season and what that experience meant to her. But first, we start with Vaiseshika Das, an American monk I met recently at the 2022 Sadhu Sangha Kirtan Retreat at the Hare Krishna Temple in Spanish Fork, Utah. We've spoken before with Charu Das, the leader of that temple, in episode 31 from season 2. Check out that interview on our website. I interviewed Vaisesika Das after his kirtan session backstage. Kirtan is a call-and-response song or chant accompanied by the harmonium, the tabla, and other musical instruments. The song is an ecstatic practice, meaning it's intended to bring the devotees, or devotees as they say, to an altered state of consciousness. And I saw at that retreat during extended kirtans, as those around me were brought to their feet, joyfully dancing and connecting with each other. But the kirtan can also bring deep contemplation. The gathering is for bringing together all the people who want to be in a spiritual atmosphere. And this particular event, which has been going on for almost a decade or more, I'd have to check on that. It was started by His Holiness Indra Dumna Swami. And he's a, a big advocate of kirtan, or what's called sankirtan, everyone coming together to chant. So he organized these programs so that everyone would have a time to just put aside any of their worries, their jobs, their duties, and be together in one place for several days. It always happens on Memorial Weekend whenever everyone has three days off. I became a part of the organization in 1973. I was in my junior year in high school, and I was a seeker, and I got some of the literature from the Hare Krishna movement, and I thought the philosophy was profound, and the festivities were more than I could have expected. I thought that spiritual life meant austerity and being very dry and stoic. And when I saw the singing, dancing, and the tasty food that um, is called prasadam or spiritual food that's first offered to God before we eat it. I thought this is a, a joyful process, so I joined. Had you been a singer before or did you just take this on no. as part of the worship? No, I, I was never a singer. I just took it on as part of the worship. I'm not really a singer now. I just sort of 
you know, just sing from the heart, you know, nothing mm-hmm. professional. And my teacher, who's the founder of, of the Hare Krishna movement, his name is Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, always advocated just sing from your heart or if it's painting, paint from your heart and God within your heart will teach you how to do it. I'm wondering what you see happening when you get a group of people together and you communally do the chants and the music together and dancing too. There was lots of dancing. Well, you know, Stephen, when I got here last night, uh, the sun was going down. I was sitting on the grassy hill and the kirtan was going on and I could hear the names Hare, Krishna, Rama, which were all names for the Supreme. And I saw a flock of geese going in a V across the sky and I was thinking, God's in their hearts too. It's natural intelligence throughout the universe and we feel it ourselves. And I felt a unity amongst all the living entities, not just the people here chanting, but I could feel a kind of connectedness with everyone in the universe because we're all parts and parcels of the Supreme. We're all servants of the Supreme. leading something like this do you have a goal in mind either for you or for what you hope for those who are in attendance I came with a group of young people in our center in Silicon Valley I have a a youth program called Youth Jam and we get together for a a lot of kirtan and also singing of uh, Sanskrit verses I find that children starting at a very early age can pick this up and become really expert at it very quickly, even from five years old or even uh, younger. So when we came here, uh, we already have been performing a lot of these kirtans back home. And just before we went onto the stage, I got them in a huddle, like you would at a football game. <laughs> and, and I said, uh, we're not doing a performance. We're going to sing for the Lord and sing from your heart and sing for your own purification, not for a musical performance and just be genuine from your heart and that's how we frame it when we go to sing. Whether people are singing in a group or whether they are speaking those names to themselves or maybe even just in their mind, what is the hope or the purpose of chanting those names? There's a a natural communion when we're attentive to the fact that we're saying someone's name. I was thinking about this the other day, Stephen, that It's not possible to have gratitude unless somebody's behind the gift that you're getting. Mm. If you're walking down the street, somebody drops a $100 bill and they didn't know it and you pick it up, you can't be grateful to them because they didn't intend it. Uh And if I say I'm grateful for the universe, there must be a personal intention behind it. And when, when we chant Hare Krishna, we want to commune with that person that uh, is the supreme uh, of whom we're part and we're eternally related in love so it, it's a kind of reckoning in some ways when we're chanting individually to see how are we doing can we sit here and actually just repeat the names of, of the divine or do we have to get up does the mind tell us no no go look at your email <laughs> you know how long can uh-huh. we sit and, and feel sincere about it I will say that in Kirtan with a large group of people together, it's a lot easier. This is a, like there's music and people can sit there for hours and listen. But the individual chanting on beads, like you were mentioning, is a little more difficult. At some of the more joyful times when I felt the tempo of the music come up and the volume and the enthusiasm, I hear calls of Aribol. What does that mean? 
Actually, my spiritual teacher, Prabhupada, used to say it's a shortcut to chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. Hare means, uh, is a name for the divine, which means one who takes away all your miseries and all the obstacles on your path. And bull means to, to chant, to sing it. So Hare Bull, when you tell somebody Hare Bull, it means chant the names of God. That makes sense, then. <laughs> In the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, we already are connected to the divine. It's just that we've become majorly distracted. And we have an eternal kinship with the Lord. So the devotional lifestyle is one that teaches or one in which we have enlightened engagement with the world, which means that everything that we do in our life can be connected. For instance, when I work, if I think I'm doing this work for myself, then I'm subjected to the ups and downs, the loss and gain, get a job, lose a job, get money, lose money. It's the same old thing. But if I'm thinking I'm dedicating this job, my energy that I'm putting into for the Supreme, it's what he's allotted to me in this lifetime, I dedicate it to him, then I feel a connectedness in my work. Similarly in family, we raise family. If you just think I'm proud of my family, that's good and everyone should be. But at the same time, if I think my family, I'm raising them so that they can have a connection with the Supreme and I'm dedicating the family life to the Supreme then there's a connectedness there. There's not one thing that can't be connected. It already is. It's just a matter of realizing that connection. was Vaiseshika Das speaking with me at the Hare Krishna Temple in Spanish Fork, Utah. While Vaiseshika Das is an overt practitioner of religious music designed to be experienced as such, and spends much of his time in saffron robes easily identifiable as a monk, not all religious artists are necessarily creating art that's automatically categorized as religious. I spoke with Kimia Ferdosi Klein, a Baha'i visual artist from Nashville, Tennessee, successfully working in mixed media, meaning she often paints on papyrus and then sews jewels or leather to the paintings. If you see Kimia's work, you might not assume it's religious, and you might not assume that she's a religious artist. And she had an interesting response to my question about seeing herself as a religious artist making religious art. Kimia holds fine art degrees from San Francisco Art Institute and Washington University in St. Louis, Her work has been exhibited in New York, San Francisco, Detroit, and Berlin. She's taught or guest lectured at Yale, SUNY Purchase, and Brooklyn College, among other institutions. And she's also curated exhibitions for private collectors and corporations. Kimia has upcoming group exhibitions in Paris and Milan. Her website is kimiakline.com and we recommend you take some time to look over her work. You know, this question kind of reminds me of when people ask me, what Iranian influence is there in your artwork? How is being a Persian American part of your aesthetic? Mm -hmm. And my answer to that is, it's kind of like someone asking you, what does being right-handed or five foot three or having brown eyes, how does that influence your art? You know, it's just something that is so a part of me Mm. that I can't separate it out from what, from the final product that I'm making. So is this religious art? Is this art made by an artist who, is this a brown eyed artist art? You know, it's just (laughs) kind of like, it's just a fact of, of who I am and how I move through the world. And I think 
I think the art has that as because our art is like a sponge. It soaks up who and what we are, every bit of us. And when we when it comes out of us, it holds all of those things. If we're, I think if we're making art authentic to who we are and we're honest with who we are in ourselves, then every bit that's in us, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, that is reflected in your art. So I am a religious person. I'm also a right-handed person. I'm also five, three and three quarters. So it's like all of those things are in the art in some way. You know, the dimensions of the art are oftentimes smaller or scaled to the size of my body. Like everything about me is in the work. Would I define it in any one way based on any one of my characteristics of which there are multitudes? No. But can you see elements of religious symbolism in the work? Yes, you can. Would I classify the overarching umbrella term for my work as religious? I don't know. I think it flattens it out, actually. Mm. Kimmy, what you said is so beautiful that even the dimensions of someone's body, the dimensions of their mind as an artist show up, that makes me want to look at my fellow human beings as creations of God (laughs) as Mm -hmm. possible clues to to their creator or or my creator. I had had not made that connection. Thank you for for bringing that up. (laughs) That's really, really worth thinking about. I wish I could take credit for it. It comes from the artist, Mark Bradford, who one time someone asked him, why are all of your canvases this dimension? And he he held out his arms and showed his wingspan. And you know, our wingspan proportionally is the same as our height. And he held out his wingspan and he said, because I'm this big. (laughs) And sure enough, all of his canvases were his exact wingspan. I mean, he also paints much larger as well. He does really gigantic stuff. But I do think that the size and and our scale, our physical scale is somehow imprinted. Even how we hold a brush, if you're right-handed or left-handed, the mark is going to go a different way. All of those things imprint themselves on how we make our work. Mm. Art is service and art is worship. I think that having that understanding from childhood and experiencing it. You know, I remember when I would go to these pottery classes as a child or when I would like really focus on a drawing and and make it as beautiful as I could possibly make it. I always felt transported. I always felt like it was an out-of-body experience. And that kind of magic that I experienced from childhood that was reinforced with these beautiful teachings around arts and crafts from the Baha'i faith, I think gave me the permission and the confidence to pursue it professionally. Because we don't really live in a society where studying visual art is something that your parents are going to be happy with if you tell them, like, (laughs) mom, dad, I'm going to study painting. Typically doesn't go over great. I am really lucky to have really supportive parents. And they supported me in that decision, even though I think there was some hesitancy, but they were they were wonderful about it. And I think given stereotypes that we see in society and, and all of the funding that's cut from public schools around art, it's easy to see that it's a discipline that is not really valued in our country, in our society. And like I think it, that's it's a, a nice luxury sometimes. If, it's a nice if we luxury. Have time it's and it's money. entertainment. Yeah, it's entertainment. There's another quote from Baha'u'llah that says, art uplifts the world of man and is conducive to its exaltation. And Mm. I always think about that when I'm in my studio. I love that image that artists, and perhaps I'd include poets and others, can lift us through images and metaphor to understand spiritual things. Where religion can easily become a checklist, and Mm -hmm. instead this is a higher vision. Any subject matter, anything that we as humans dedicate our lives to sincerely perfecting comes with lessons of the divine. Like Muhammad Ali, a boxer, very different than painting or making sculpture. I think he said something like, all I ever wanted was to serve man and be close to God. Any endeavor that like we really are sincerely um, striving in holds those lessons because it's a process of growth. Uh, the, I think the the more that you perfect the craft, whatever it is, the closer you do come to God naturally, because that's one of the names of God. Perfection is God's. It's not man's. The more that we perfect whatever it is that we're doing, I think I think more lessons are revealed to us. Like, I'll give you one example in my studio. Meditation is a huge part of what happens when I'm making a painting. 
I'll put down a color, I'll make a mark, and then I'll step back maybe 20 feet and I'll sit in my chair and I'll stare at the piece on the wall, sometimes for days without making another move. And I'm really just meditating on what needs to happen next. And that process, that practice, I had tried meditation for years, you know, like the you like cross your legs and close your eyes and sit in a dark room. And that just doesn't work for me. But meditation through art making is something that is really, really tangible and something I'm able to do. And answers always come to me. I, I literally very clearly hear you need yellow in the upper left-hand corner, or <laughs> you need to you need to cut that corner so that it's not, not a right angle, but it's a curve. You know, I, I hear these things literally. And that to me is, it's from someplace else. I don't know where it's coming from, but it's definitely not coming from any physical realm. And I think it's very, it's very linked to the process of tapping in and tuning into your own soul and your own spirit, which is of course connected to God. My business is not what people think about my art. My business is to make my art. So I don't really ever think about my audience. I I think I am my audience. Mm. (laughs) I'm my audience. I make the work for me. My hope and my sincerest wish is that it helps other people and it speaks to other people. But who sees my work, who likes my work, who buys my work, who shows my work, I have no no sense of, you know, and, and I'm never thinking of a certain, a certain audience when I'm making the work. I'm really, it's such an introspective practice for me, um, making a piece that I really only, when I'm looking at something, I'm really only thinking about satisfying myself. Is this good enough? Is this finished? Is this resolved? Is this distracting? And then once it's done in the studio, I I really kind of release it and I'm detached from it and, and hope it serves in some way. But the question of audience is not something I think about ever. Hmm. And I want to tell you that the Baha'i headquarters in Israel, I stayed for a few days a few years ago and went really? uh, went up to Haifa. I lived there for a year. Oh, my goodness. That, yep, after those, college. Those terraced gardens on the hillside. <laughs> sure. I spent a whole day and wished I'd had a week. I hope you get to go back. Oh, I'm planning on it. Just the aesthetic <laughs> care that yes. you can't walk through that without having some sort of transcendent experience. It it because it just takes you out of a world of traffic and everything else. It's it was like being in a work of art. The year that I lived there, if ever I felt guilty or unsure about studying art, being immersed in that level of physical beauty really sort of bolstered my confidence and my soul because I was like, there can't be anything wrong with pursuing a life of trying to make this world more beautiful. In Good Faith, we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to In Good Faith. We heard earlier from Kimia Ferdosi-Klein, whose mixed-media work is exhibited in North America and Europe. You can find examples on her website at kimiaklein.com. She discussed how she doesn't really have an audience in mind when she's creating her work, and that's something we also heard from Agam Darshi, a filmmaker based in Los Angeles. Agam is a Canadian actress who's most recently worked with Ava DuVernay in DMZ, Agam wrote, produced, and directed Donkey Head in 2021, her first film, which you can find now on Netflix. Agam co-founded the International South Asian Film Festival in Vancouver in 2014. She's the recipient of a 2021 Leo Award for her role in Deepa Mehta's Funny Boy. Agam is also from the Sikh tradition, S-I-K-H. Sikhism originated on the Indian subcontinent in the Punjab region in the 15th century. Today, there are nearly 25 million Sikhs around the world, including a diaspora with communities in Canada and the U.S. Sikh men are recognizable by the turban they commit to wear their entire lives. Agam's film is about adult siblings who gather to deal with their father's death. Agam also plays the main character, Mona, a broken woman who's afraid of her siblings' criticism over how she's living her life. The film is notable because it's one of the few North American movies about a Sikh family. The film includes visual representation of their practices, specifically prayer rituals, which occur at death. 
Agam felt strongly that these practices needed to be respectfully filmed. Our producer Heather Bigley interviewed Agam over Zoom. Enjoy the spring sounds of birds in L.A. In the script itself, I knew that there was going to be prayers, but it's literally like a small paragraph saying montage of prayers. <laughs> like I didn't really put a lot of thought into it. When I took off my writer's hat and put on my director's hat, I was like, wow, like this is getting heavy because they're in a house for the majority of the film. And in every room, you're going to be able to hear this prayer. They're, they're doing um, something called an akanpat, which is a three-day prayer where they read the holy book from beginning to end, day and night. So there's always a priest or a few priests in the house who are reading this prayer. So you're going to be able to hear the prayer throughout the house at different levels, depending on which room they're in. Just that in itself, like hearing that sort of like low murmur of the prayers going on, that took a lot of organization and thought as to how it was done. And then also just the visual images of, you know, like the the photographs, where they're placed. Like there was a, a specific moment where this isn't necessarily part of the prayer, but it's just how a lot of these houses are. They have, you know, photos of the different gurus. And at one point, Mona steals a $20 bill. And right behind her is a picture of a guru, you know, kind of watching down on her. And the next scene, she's like in bed with a guy, which is was really shocking, but also very, like I did it on purpose and I had a real reason for it. It wasn't just to shock people, but it was to to make a comment about it. And then the actual prayer itself, people coming in and taking off their shoes as soon as they walk inside and making sure that their heads are covered. And there are so many elements about it that, that I just wanted to get right. Even like going back to the first part of being able to hear the prayer throughout, I I had my film once I had edited the film and was doing sound design. I had uh, one of my cultural consultants, his name's Panit Singh, who's really well versed in Sikhism. I had him watch the film and tell me, was there anything here that that felt uh, like I pushed the boundaries a little too far, like that people could really get upset about? And from our conversations, Whenever you hear Mona or her siblings, if they're fighting, if there's a swear word or if she's saying something, the background prayer dips. It's not actually going on at the same time as these bad words or whatever. Like, even though it's it's such a subconscious thing, it's such a small thing. I just wanted to respect these words because these words are holy. And I have a lot to say about, you know, the culture and, and, you know, perhaps the hypocrisy that's that happens, but the actual religion itself is very beautiful. Like the spiritual sort of thread is beautiful. And I really wanted to protect that. I think I've seen and I've been a part of too many films where culture is washed over with a broad stroke. And because in this particular film, it is about a sick family. It is about, there is a prayer that's happening. It just felt like I had to make it as absolutely honest as possible and as absolutely right as possible. So usually when you do these types of prayers, you can't have a ceiling. You can't have like another room on top of the room that you're doing this prayer because the holy book is supposed to be on the highest level. You could do it on a top floor or you can do it in a house where there's nothing above. We talked extensively about like, what does the geography of the house look like and how does it work? And what can we get away with in cinema to make the audience think that there is nothing above, (laughs) you know? And And then also just the fact that people wear scarves when they're in the vicinity of the holy book. So what does that mean for the characters and would they wear scarves and how can we get away with them not? And what if we put the whole prayer in this one particular room? So anything that happens sort of around it and outside of it, we don't have to like Mona, for instance, doesn't have to wear her headscarf. Yeah. It was just like so many little moments like that to ensure that things felt right. For me with Donkey Head, there has been a theme in my own personal life of trust, of trusting myself. Some people I think are really apt at that, but that's always been something that I've struggled with and that that I've had to learn along the way. It's interesting because since my 
boys were born, they're five and a half now. I've been on this quest in a lot of ways to push myself. I've always pushed myself, but the level of how I've been pushing myself since they were born has just really just increased year after year. The first year that they were born, I did a one woman show and they were like six months old and I had written like 15 different characters and it was really intense, but it was just, it was so profound and wonderful. And I'd never done anything in terms of that level of challenge. After that, you know, I did Funny Boy, but then I also ended up like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. which was like this huge, I'm not an athletic person, you know, but, but I got to the summit and that was like really great for me. I, I had learned so much from that experience of just putting one foot in front of the other and, and just staying with something. And then a year later, I'm making donkey head. And so I don't believe that these things are individual experiences. I think they're all related to each other. And I think it's all just to show me what it is to commit, what it is just put one foot in front of the other and what it is to... Like just to trust that real inner voice inside of you. I mean, that is ultimately your soul, right? That's a piece of God. That's the thing that's connected to something higher and to just channel it and allow it to really speak. That's really how simple life is. It's just one foot in front of another, one foot in front of another, but we make it so much more complicated. Earlier, you talked about, as an actor, surrendering to uh, the work and surrendering to the process. And then part of the surrender, it seems, is to take risk at the same time. Do you think that's true? I don't know if you can surrender if you don't take a risk, because then you're just not moving. Right. But I think for a lot of us, when we hear surrender, we might think martyrdom, or we might think, you know, I'm sort of making myself smaller or something. But actually, part of the surrender is to like, I'm going to, yeah, (laughs) I'm leaping right now. And how important that might be for a lot of us spiritually, right? Like, actually, Mm -hmm. the surrender doesn't mean disappearance. It means. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because there feels like there's a vanity to be seen. And I struggle with that a little bit you know, as well. Like, am I being vain to want to be seen, to want to be heard, to want to put this stuff out there, to want to tell stories and have people see it? How do I negotiate that? And that's a constant question for me, you know? And and at the end of the day, I just come back to just that feeling inside of me of, of what it is to create. I think the surrender comes in not having any expectation about who your audience is. The thing about Donkey Head that was just so beautiful for me and the thing that perhaps was what I needed to learn and hopefully I can learn it and move it, bring it to the next thing and the next thing is when I set out to make it, I literally had no idea how big my budget was going to be, who was going to see it. I was, I, But I knew I was going to make it. So it was like, well, even if it means that I have to cobble together $20,000 I can make this film because it's it's doable. It'll be like handheld and it'll be messy and all of that, but it's doable. And even if it means that it goes to like a film festival, you know, that nobody's heard about, I'll be happy. Like this will be, this will just be so great. But then I guess the the story itself resonated and and the producers came on board and then the funding came on board and then the distribution came on board. And now it's seen on such a larger platform. But I think the mistake is made when we say to ourselves, I want to make this thing and I want it to be seen on like this huge platform. You know, I want everyone to see it because that's not, that's not us. We don't have any say in that. We only have the say in, I am going to create something and try my best and put it out there. And then you just have to surrender. You have to let go but still do all this fantastic work, right? Like, yeah. yeah, treat it like it is a, you know, a million dollar film, even if it is, you know, something that's 20,000. That was filmmaker Agam Darshi discussing her film Donkey Head, now on Netflix, and the thought and strategy that goes into respectfully portraying a religious family and culture in film. Both Agam and Kimia told us they didn't have an audience uppermost in their minds as they created. But what if you are the audience? Most of us experience art as consumers. We're standing in the museum looking at paintings, or we're sitting in the movie theater watching the movie. Jenny Thomas, a musicologist in Cincinnati, Ohio, shared her experience of listening to Bach's B minor mass during the 2022 Easter season. 
Johann Sebastian Bach, born in the 17th century, spent most of his professional life composing and performing music for Protestant churches in present-day Germany. In North American hymnals, you might find his Jesu, Joy of Man's Desiring, or O Sacred Head Now Wounded, also known as O Savior, Thou Who Wearest a Crown. His worshipful compositions have inspired other musicians and composers through the centuries, as well as those of us lucky enough to be seated in the pew when someone else, with talents different than ours, shares his music. Here's Jenny describing her experience with Bach's B minor Mass from 1749. After two years of avoiding indoor crowds, I first heard live music again just before Easter. I began with Bach. Hearing his B minor mass opened my ears and my soul in a way that I hadn't felt for far too long. As a musicologist, I focus on how musical sounds work, especially how music and text work together. created a musical sermon every week of his professional life as the cantor in a Lutheran church in Leipzig. But as a Lutheran, he had no professional reason to write a mass, and certainly not one of this magnitude. Yet the B minor mass was his culminating work. The ritual of the mass marks the truths shared by Christian believers, from the anguished Kyrie to the sublime Dona Nobis Pacem. Bach's music ponders and expresses each word revealing his own emotional and spiritual understanding of the timeless liturgy. Last week of Lent, the crucifixus and the resurrect seat of Bach's Mass made the agony of the Passion and the overwhelming joy of Christ's resurrection palpable. Music draws out the few words of the text, suspending time in the emotion and meaning and significance of each word and phrase repeated again and again. The crucifixus conveys not Christ's torment and suffering, but the hopeless sorrow of his followers gathered at the foot of the cross who had witnessed his humiliation, torture, death, and burial. Drooping, meandering, melodic lines converge and separate, moving in unexpected directions, but not able to move beyond the fact of Jesus' agony and death. Bach ends the crucifixus with a musical resolution that probably had never been heard before. It brings the music to a point of repose, but not of finality. Bach's oral depiction of this moment unites a modern listener with the experience of those disciples. The Resurrexit text immediately following explodes with shocking energy and unceasing motion and momentum. A brass fanfare and chorus create a visceral jolt of astonishment. Then smaller groups of voices and softer instruments describe Jesus at the right hand of his Father. 
But the fanfare returns just as the realization and joy must have to the disciples as they began to comprehend Jesus' godly power. As I sat in a chapel among hundreds of other listeners, engulfed in the joy of hearing Bach's music, the musical embodiment of the Christian's journey of faith, I felt my own faith and testimony called up and made alive, resurrected. I felt humble, grateful, affirmed. I felt things I can't describe or understand, and that is the gift of the B minor Mass, to express what words cannot. In Good Faith, we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to In Good Faith. Thanks to Jenny Thomas for sharing her experience with us with the Bach B minor Mass. We hope you have a chance to listen to it in its entirety. We close today's episode with a conversation with J. Kirk Richards, a Latter-day Saint painter whose work can be found in church buildings, media, and private collections. Kirk shares with us how painting has brought him a better understanding of who Jesus was and is. We joined in discussion as Kirk describes his painting, Christ Among the Lepers, which currently hangs in the lobby of the Administration Building of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Salt Lake City. A large painting of Jesus healing a leper at a cave. It ended up uh, hanging in a, a large church building. Part of the, that process was what I felt was inspiration, being in Galilee, standing by this cave and kind of placing myself in the time of Jesus in my mind. And, and then also kind of placing myself in the minds of these people that are depicted in the painting. So all of those types of experiences have built my kind of foundation of what I think it is to be Christian and to try to do what is wanted of me as somebody that wants to follow Christ and still trying to do that every day. But the paintings help. Again, like I say, it's a meditation. It's a prayer. It's kind of a hymn. Hmm. All of those things are, are ways that I would describe my offering as a visual artist. Often we see him sort of three quarters from the back or not totally in focus. And that's a conscious choice. Would you talk about how you present him? Again, going back to the leper and the cave painting, some of those things maybe are come out of uh, the movies that I watched like Ben-Hur when I was young, you know. <laughs> and in Ben-Hur, we never see the face of Christ. Yeah. We, see, we see kind of his hands. We see him from behind. I actually felt like that was a powerful device because it leaves so much. It doesn't fill in the details for us. We're, we're able to bring our own experience to the work of art. And also... As the scriptures say, we see through a glass darkly. There are so many things that we don't know. We tried to know, but there, there's a veil that covers our, our understanding in, in this life. And so by abstracting the face of Christ or by even 
painting him in, or these scenes in a more impressionist way, I think it, it does similar things to what Ben-Hur did in the, mm. old, the old movie. You chose almost from the very beginning to concentrate on spiritual subjects. Not all of your instructors were excited about that or thought that was something that a new artist should head out on. I don't know exactly when I kind of decided to devote myself principally to religious artwork. I know that even in my sketchbook as a teen, I had a picture or two of Jesus. But I I remember kind of in my late teen years, early adult years, uh, really falling in love with the work of Karl Bloch. I would see his work reproduced in a lot of the church buildings and publications, and I really loved the spirit of that work. I ended up getting a mission call to Rome, Italy, so I spent two years in in Rome, Italy. You know, once a week had the opportunity to explore museums and churches with works by people like Michelangelo and Caravaggio. And so that just further solidified my interest in religious imagery. Like you said, as I as I came back to college, began to really experiment with my own take on religious imagery. And it wasn't always well received. And I, I think, well, I think a couple of things. One of the things is that my teachers, their goal was to prepare their students for the possibility of moving on to graduate degrees in prestigious universities that maybe would be less interested in kind of overt religious imagery or traditional takes on religious imagery, I should I should say. Also, they'd just seen it done done poorly and they didn't didn't want their student to take that route. It's really interesting. I mean, even as a going back to my mission in Italy, you know, we have some of the greatest artwork in the history of the world uh, right there in Rome and it's of a religious nature, but by the same token, everyday people would hand around these little cards with saints on them that were Again, more like kind of folk, not really great crafted art. And I think we can see that pretty much in any society where there is is really a, a pinnacle of art within that religious tradition, but there's also a lot of kind of the common art. And I think that my professors were maybe worried that I might fall into that trap. Mm. Was there a moment when you felt like, I think I just started to connect with an audience, with what I what I really want to do? I don't know if there was a moment where I felt that connection beginning. I think that that's been an ongoing thing for the last, you know, 20, 22 years. But I do remember the moment when I felt like I have the vocabulary, I have the technique, I have the ability to say what I want to say. So I felt like that was finally had the ability to communicate. And then over time, that ability to communicate connected with people increasingly. I felt that feeling as a senior kind of closing in on on graduating. Uh, I just felt like I could breathe, finally. (laughs) (laughs) Because of the subjects you do choose, my guess is that as you're working on whether a smaller sketch or a large canvas, a sculpture, that you do a lot of spiritual ruminating on the meaning of the events that you're portraying or the characters that you're portraying, whether they're actual biblical characters or just a person you're creating. I've had to ask myself with each painting, like, who is Jesus? What does it mean to be like him or to to be Christian or to implement Christianity in my own life, and then other characters as well, as you mentioned. But principally, I've painted a lot of images of Jesus Christ. It's a form of, I think, meditation to make a painting about a subject like this. It's to really analyze my own feelings and and maybe try to put myself in that historical or in that story. A lot of my spiritual joy actually does come through the arts, hearing just like a sublime piece of music, seeing an artwork that just transports me into a different world, a different way of seeing things. And then again, I think a lot of it comes back to my own family, watching them, my my kids develop, understanding how to become unified in purpose with my wife, Amy. Those types of development make me feel like 
I'm becoming what God wants me to to become or, or learning what God wants me to learn. Do you think that's been a constant in your life, this idea or assurance that, that there was God and that God had some interest in, in you as a person? I always wonder. <laughs> I always wonder. I've also always believed that God, as I understand God, is interested in our desires individually. The Bible says, ask and you, you shall receive. Like if, if you lack wisdom, you can ask and you won't be abraded. And God is not going to give you a stone when he can give you a fish. I, and I believe that is true. And that's why we are encouraged and able, and we have the directive to continue to ask. Hmm. Who do you see as your audience? As a young artist wanting to paint religious themes, the temptation is to target church magazines, for example, as your audience. And I've always kind of resisted that idea. I've always tried to paint for God's children generally. But more specifically, I think over time, my audience has kind of found me. And that seems to be people who are interested in a big tent church, people who are interested in increasingly creating space for those who want to participate in the church as as the kingdom of God. Part of the thing that I think drives my artwork is an ongoing conversation with the people who engage with it. For me personally, the gospel raises more questions than it answers. <laughs> I know a lot of people turn to uh, religion, to church, to worship, to give answers to their questions. For me, it just raises so many questions. And so I like to explore those questions with the people who are interested in having those conversations and, and, and have found me through my artwork. That's our time for today. We hope you have art in your life that helps you feel closer to the divine, that brings peace and comfort, that sparks curiosity and compassion, and inspires you to reach out to those around you and to God. This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley, and our post sound was designed by Kira Brewer. The recording we featured of Bach's Mass in B minor was performed by the 16, choir and orchestra conducted by Harry Christophers by kind permission of the 16 Productions Limited, available on the Coro label from all good music retailers and the16.com. Thanks again to J. Kirk Richards, Jenny Thomas, Agam Darshi, Kimi Klein, and Vaisesika Das for speaking with us about their art and spiritual life. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief in fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a five-star comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. <laughs>